This morning, we uh, continue our series in the Psalms by reading Psalm 54. Now, this psalm it has, it has two major points that we're going to emphasize this morning. That God is our upholder and that God is our deliverer. We're going to take a look at the situation around which this psalm was written. And we're going to see how even though this psalm was written a long time ago, in a situation that we may not necessarily be able to relate to, that it is still relevant and important for us today. God is our upholder and our deliverer. Let's read our psalm this morning, Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Amen. So if you look in your Bible and you're reading this psalm, there's like a a heading, a subscription or whatever as as we call it. And, and, And the heading of this psalm tells us that this is a psalm written by David and that he wrote it when the Ziphites went and told Saul... Is not David hiding among us? So not necessarily like the most well-known story of David. But we find it in 1 Samuel 23, 15-29. And it's out of this experience that David writes this psalm. David is at a point where he is being pursued by King Saul. Right? King Saul doesn't have a very high... Uh, thought. He's not very fond of David at this point in time. But that's not always the way the relationship was. Uh, Saul was anointed king and he reigned for, for a few years and then he fell out of favor with God. God got frustrated with Saul. Saul was, was seeking glory for himself and, and he was acting in ways that God didn't want his king to act. And so he anoints David. And then he ends up bringing David into Saul's camp. Now, Saul would get angry. He'd get real mad. And David would come in and he'd play the lyre. Lyre. I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I guarantee that. But uh, he'd come in and he'd play the instrument, right? He'd come in and he'd play the stringed instrument. And, and it would calm Saul down. And Saul would be like, all right, you know, this is great. This is a great thing. And he fell in love with David. And then David met Jonathan, which is Saul's son. And the Bible tells us that, that Jonathan's soul was like knit with David and that they were best friends and that Jonathan just loved David so much and David basically became like a son to Saul. But then God started blessing David in ways that made Saul incredibly jealous. And they come back from a big battle actually when when David slays Goliath. They come back and, and the ladies come into the streets and they're banging their tambourines and they say Saul has killed thousands and David ten thousands. Of our enemies. And Saul starts to get a little jealous. He's like, whoa, now who's the king? 
This kid who was my armor bearer who plays an instrument when I get mad? Or me? I'm the king, man. Like, come on. Give me my due. How can they be praising him over me? And, and, And that just continues to get worse because God continues to bless David. And Saul gets more and more mad to a point when, again, so David plays this harp when Saul like, gets into his fits. It gets to the point where David, like Saul picks up a spear and his thought is, I'm going to pin David to the wall with this puppy. And he hucks the spear and David's able to evade it. And it says that he threw two. David evaded Saul twice. It gets to the point where David is no longer safe in Saul's house. And David becomes this constant thorn in Saul's side to the point where whenever Saul's not taking care of like kingdom business, he's out trying to get him some David. And he's constantly pursuing David everywhere he goes. And so David ends up going into hiding. He's living a life of fear and hiding. And he's constantly like trying to move around. And he ends up going to the land of the Ziphites and he's just hanging out there. Saul has no idea where he is. Saul doesn't know where David is at this point in time. He's just hanging out. He doesn't know anyone. He's a stranger in the land. He's just doing his thing. And what happens? But the Ziphites go to Saul and they say, Hey, Saul, David's hanging out in our area. They say, they say uh, Is not David hiding among us? Just so you know, Saul, we don't know David. We don't really know you. We're not a part of your kingdom. We're not even, we're not a land that you rule. We don't fall under your jurisdiction. But just so you know, we know where David is and he's hanging out with us. So David is betrayed by strangers, by people he doesn't even know. And Saul gets his little group together and they come after David. And David finds out that they're coming and he starts to move. But Saul's got better intelligence and Saul is tracking him. And it gets to the point in 1 Samuel where we read that they're basically being chased around a mountain. So David is making his way this way around the mountain and Saul's making his way this way. And Saul, being the king, has better like equipment, faster horses, all that kind of stuff. And our verses in Samuel tell us that Saul is fast approaching David and is about to get him. And it is in this experience, it is in this story that David pens Psalm 54. Oh God, help me. Help me. So who does David call on? Who can David turn to for help? His surrogate father, the man who, is, who has been his dad for a few years now, he's lived in his house. He's best friends with his son, like a brother, is chasing him down to kill him. He's in a land of strangers, and these strangers have betrayed him. Who can he call on? Who can David turn to for help? I mean, let's, let's make it a bit more personal, right? When, when we're in a hard place, when we face Troubled times, when our sins are catching up to us, you know, that temptation is building. Maybe it's the call of the bottle, the beckoning of the latest gossip, the summons of less savory parts of the internet. When our sin is pursuing us, tempting us, calling us, who do we call on? 
Often, you know, maybe we try and fight it alone. We don't, we don't want anyone else to know that these are things that we struggle with, that these, these are temptations. Or, or maybe, maybe we, we have a few close friends or some family that we trust, that know us, that we know are going to love us no matter what. And so we turn to those that we know love us. Do we turn to God? Do we turn to God? In 1970, Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel released the song Bridge Over Troubled Water. Now, by many people's accounts, it's one of the most beautiful songs to come out of that period. I love this song. This song is fantastic. It's so good. The melody, the way it's sung, the way it builds, it's a fantastic song. In it, we have the lyrics, I'm on your side, oh, when times get rough, and friends just can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Now, Simon wrote this song for his wife. He wrote this song out of an expression of his love for her, his desire to be there for her. He made all of these promises to her in, in chord and verse, and it's beautiful. It's touching. And yet, despite all of these promises made, despite how beautifully and emotionally they are conveyed, five years after writing this song, Simon and his wife were divorced. Now, I don't bring up this example to slander Simon or his wife but to instead turn the magnifying glass inward. To give an example of how our own inability to do what we would like to do, and sometimes what we have promised to do, though we desire to always, you know, we, we desire to always have the backs of those that we love and to always be there for them when they're in, when, when they're in times of need. You know, the reality is that we fail at doing that. We have good intentions. We want to do this. This is something we, we want to do. We fail in, in spite of our best intentions. We are not able to be everything our loved ones need. In spite of our best intentions, we are not able to be everything our loved ones need. And they can't be everything we need either. Yeah, it's good to have people that love us and support us. And yes, it's good to love and support others. Of course it is. I mean, the Bible encourages us to confess our sins to one another and to share each other's burdens. But ultimately, we cannot expect anyone on this planet to at all times have the strength, the perseverance, and the faithfulness to always be there 100% of the time, no matter when we are in times of trouble. For there is only one bridge over troubled water. And we read David calling out to him in our psalm this morning. Oh God, save me by your name. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. The upholder of my life. The one who can support me when I need it. The bridge, the one who helps me pass over and through the troubled times, the troubled waters. We lean on our friends and family, our loved ones, but we are supported 
by God. He is the rock. He is our foundation. Only He can truly give us what we need. He is the one who holds us up. Our upholder. And so David is is running around this mountain and Saul has almost got him and he is calling out, God, help me. By your name, save me. I've been betrayed. I have nowhere else to go. Please, help me. And as Saul is is coming in on this query. Now we have to remember that David has been evading Saul for a while. Like this, is, this has been a thorn in Saul's side for, a, for, for not a short amount of time. And then Saul gets news. A messenger who's apparently faster than both armies is able to get to Saul and say, Saul, Philistines are attacking. Our enemy, the enemy of our country, the enemy of our nation, the true enemy... Not this guy that that you're just mad at, but the true enemy is raiding our people. We need to stop them. And so Saul, though he has a vendetta against David, though he's mad at David and would really like to pin him down and take care of him once and for all, recognizes the call of his country, recognizes his, his need to support his people and to defend them from their enemy, their true enemy, their attacker, stops his pursuit of David turns his troops around and goes after the Philistines to defend his people, to defend his country. He stops his pursuit of David. And David praises God, stating, For he, for God, has delivered me from every trouble. God has delivered me. I had no one else to rely on. I had nowhere else that was safe. There was nowhere else I could go. God has delivered me. And that's that's what he does, isn't it? God is our deliverer. The story that comes to mind for me right away that illustrates this truth so clearly, besides, like, I mean, the story of David is is great, and I think it, it brings, it sheds some light on God's deliverance. But when we look at, like, the deliverance that God brings How can we not think of Egypt? How can we not think of the people of Israel in Egypt? Slaves. Now, they've lived in Egypt for for a while, right? They they, they were there after after Joseph. Joseph brought them in, and that's what saved them. The way that that Egypt was able to ration its grain, and it saved all these people around them from the seven years of famine. And and God used Joseph in a mighty way there. And so the, the people of Israel started living in Egypt. And eventually the Egyptians got a little nervous about this. They're like, whoa, like, there's a lot of people here. And they could, they, they're starting to outnumber us. Like, they could totally come and take us. We need to enslave them so they know who's boss. And that's what they do. And so now the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. And they are there for a long time. And, and again, the Egyptians get nervous because these, the Jewish people, just the, the Israelites, they keep having kids. And they, they're like, all right, two-year-olds. All two-year-old men, we're just going to throw them into the Nile. And one Jewish mother is like, not my kid. God, please save my little boy Moses. And he, she puts Moses into a basket and she sends him into the reeds. And who finds him but the daughter of the Pharaoh. And she just takes this little Moses. She falls in love with him. She brings him to her house and she raises him as his own. Moses grows up, sees his people in bondage, gets mad, kills a dude. Now he's exiled, runs away out into the desert. God comes to him in a burning bush and says, my people 
are in slavery. My people are trapped. My people need to be delivered. Go back and bring my people out of the bondage that they are in. Moses is like, yeah, you got the wrong guy. Like, I'm, I'm not that guy. There's probably another guy that would be better at that. I'm not, I'm not that guy. And God says, yes, you are. I am using you. Go and do this. I'll send you your brother for help. So Moses and Aaron go back to Egypt. And, and, and Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, I need to let my people go. God says, let my people go. Let them leave this bondage. Let them leave this time. And, and Pharaoh's like, what? Give up all this slave labor? Are you crazy? No way. And so then God sends all these plagues. There's the frogs and the locusts and blood water and all. There's like 10 different plagues. And the final plague is the most vicious. The final plague that comes is, is, is the angel of death. Now, before this plague, Moses gathers all the people of Israel and he says, here's the deal. This next one is going to be brutal. The darkness wasn't fun. The frogs weren't fun. The locusts, that wasn't great. The blood water, not not a great thing. All the animals, like, this hasn't been a very pleasant experience, but this last one is going to be brutal. The angel of death is coming. And so what we do is we kill a lamb. This is what God wants us to do. God has told me that we kill an unblemished lamb and we take its blood and we mark our doorposts with this blood. And God says, this is the last one. After this, we're out. After this, I will have delivered you from bondage. You are free from this slavery after this. But take this blood and mark the door. And when the angel of death comes over Egypt, it is going to kill the firstborn of every house. And we're not just talking people. We're talking animals. The firstborns died. Unless your door is marked by the blood of the lamb. And if your door is marked by the blood of the lamb, then the angel of death has passed over this house. The angel of death left that house alone because that, that house was marked by the blood. That was a bad night in Egypt. Wailing. Wailing. And Pharaoh in his grief summons Moses and says, take your people and get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. Leave me. And so that's when we have Moses taking the people and parting of the Red Sea and, and going out in, in freedom. God delivered his people from slavery. He delivered his people from slavery. The blood the Israelites put on their doorframe so the angel of death would pass over them is actually a foretelling of even a greater deliverance. It's a foretelling of a greater deliverance. Right? So, so we can like look at the stories of the Bible and, and feel like they took place so long ago, right? Like I'm talking about David. I'm talking about, I've, I've told Old Testament stories today. Those stories took place like a long time ago, right? A long time ago and not a galaxy far, far away, but like a land not close to here, right? Like this took place a long time ago. And, and, and they're about a different people on a different time. And while they hold like some great moral object lessons and, and, and there's a lot of wisdom written in the Bible, 
Often the Bible can just not seem as relevant to us today because it's talking about people a long time ago from a faraway place. You know, they were written for an older time and an older people. Society's changed now, right? Like that's what we hear, society's changed. And so these stories just don't translate well into culture today. And while, you know, I understand that thought process, like where people come from when they feel that way, why they would think that way, I completely disagree with that sentiment. Completely disagree with it. Because the entire concept of deliverance speaks firmly against it. You know, we may drive cars today instead of riding donkeys or walking everywhere, and we may dress in assortment of different fashions instead of wearing robes. Our diets are, you know, they're, they're certainly more expansive. You know, we may pride ourselves on our enlightened view of gender roles and identity and scoffed at how, how strict and overbearing and shallow-minded the Bible seems to be. How could a book written so long ago have any relevance today to today? And yet, today, we still need deliverance, don't we? Though our struggles may not be a king seeking to destroy us, we still have those here on earth who want to do us harm for one reason or another. You know, whether it's the bully at school, the coworker who for some reason has it out for us, or the thief who breaks into our house, destroying our sense of safety and taking from us that which we can't afford to replace. And though we may not feel like slavery is as relevant anymore, I would encourage us to look deeper and recognize that human trafficking is a huge problem in our society right now. Not just overseas in a country we don't know how to pronounce or can't find on a map, but right here in America. Slavery is alive and real, and people need deliverance. But if we look even deeper, we see a different kind of slavery, not one that deals in human flesh, but one that deals in human hearts, in souls. Humans, by nature, are slaves to sin. So Mike read about this morning. We long to sin. It's what we most desire. We want to serve ourselves to meet our perceived needs, the needs our flesh tells us that we have. And so by nature, on our own, we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to the desires that pull us towards destruction. And how are we delivered from this slavery? It brings us back to the blood on the doorposts. The blood that marked the doors in the book of Exodus. The blood that marked the people of Israel as God's followers, his children. And because they were marked by this blood, the angel of death passed over them and they were set free. The blood of those lambs back in Egypt points ahead to the future and is a representation of the blood of the true lamb that was shed for all of us on the cross at Calvary. You know, Jesus carried that cross up that hill. And he died for the sins of each one of us, paying the price one time for all time. And and if we believe in him, if we believe that because of our imperfections, because of our natural state and our slavery to sin, a sin that we cannot pay for on our own. If we believe that we needed his death, the shedding of innocent blood, 
the death of someone who never sinned to pay for our multitude of sin. If we believe that Jesus' death was enough, that he has the power to pay that price, then we are marked by the blood of Jesus. We are marked by the blood of the true lamb. And spiritual death and eternity in hell passes over us. It walks us by. If we believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and our need of it, then we are marked by the blood of Jesus. And it covers us and we have been delivered from the slavery of sin. If we believe all of that to be true, then we have been set free. Set free. I don't know where you're at in your walk of life this morning, but I know that if you don't have a relationship with God, then he is calling you into one. God longs to have a relationship with you. He longs to set you free. And if you have a relationship with God, if you believe in Christ's work on the cross on your behalf, then he is calling you into a deeper relationship with him. He is working on you, forming you, calling you, reminding you of his love and his work on your behalf. God loves each one of us so much. None of us is a finished product. None of us is perfect. And none of us will be this side of heaven. But we do not have to focus on our failings. For God is our deliverer. And he is capable. God is our upholder and our deliverer. You know, him being our upholder and deliverer does not mean that life will be without trouble. It does not mean that only good things will happen to us or to those that we love. Each of us will have trouble in life. That's not God abandoning us. That's not God forgetting us. No, instead he promises to be there with us. To uphold us. To weather the storms of life with us. And he has promised that he is our deliverer. Maybe not always in the ways that we want or expect. But absolutely in the way that we need. So as you leave this morning, rest in the knowledge that God has done the work. Rest in the truth that he is the upholder of our lives. That he is the one that we can rely on in all areas of life. And rest in the grace of a God who saves. Who delivers his people from slavery to sin. Rest in his grace. Amen.